you bow your heads and pray with me? Merciful God, you are gracious to speak to us. And so we ask that you would continue to do that as you've already done in your scriptures. Humble us, make us alive, help us to hear, help us to find life in your word like the psalmist. Lord, we thank you um, that you do that, you continue to do that, and we trust that you will do that this morning and into the future. You are a God who holds it all together. So help us to put our confidence in you here this morning, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in Romans chapter 8. We're doing our last reading from Romans chapter 8 this morning, starting in verse 26. If you'll open your Bibles, I encourage you to do that. So the the great New Testament scholar and in many ways historian and Anglican bishop N.T. Wright writes in his in his introduction to the New Testament, his big fat new volume that I'm starting to work through. uh, And it's a great it's a great introduction to the world of the first century uh, where the gospel is breaking into. He writes this by contrast with most of the ancient world. Early Christianity was very much a bookish culture. He's British. Bookish, okay? It's a good word. Bookish. You should use that this week in common speech and have everyone look at you funny. So it was very much a bookish culture in contrast to the rest of the first century world. We sometimes think of the movement or else the start of early Christianity as basically a religion. But a first century observer blundering in on a meeting of Christians would almost certainly have seen them initially as belonging to some kind of education institution. That's a really interesting paragraph. It kind of blew away, both because both bookish and blundering, good words, uh, but it's interesting. I come to the scriptures thinking of it very religiously, and it sort of reshaped my mind. Now, if you have blundered into any of our meetings lately here on Sunday morning, then you've probably felt this way. You've you've seen a very bookish service, a very uh, deep theology, very intellectually stressful in some ways. And today's text goes even deeper. It goes way deeper than we've gone. But rather than break down subject and verb agreement, um, which is very important in this text. Sooner Goss coffee didn't come out of nowhere. There's a really strong and important verb in this text. Or debate the time significance of an aorist active indicative, which is a very, very lengthy debate. I would love to do that, and we can do that offline afterwards if you'd like. But I I just want to encourage us this morning. I want to encourage us. We could keep digging deeper but I don't know if that would be profitable this morning. There's way too much. There's way too much. So my aim this morning is, if you're brokenhearted, I aim to bring joy this morning. If you're fixed gold or dumb like me, I want to communicate some knowledge to you. Strength for the weak. Words for those who can't speak. So that's my aim this morning, and I think that's Paul's aim. That is Paul's aim. This is one of the reasons why Romans 8 comes down to us as such an important chapter. His aim is worship, and that's what I want to inspire in us this morning. Worship. 
And that has always been the goal, the goal. continuing from N.T. Wright. Think of this bookish culture. Wright continues, from very early on, the followers of Jesus discovered that when they read these books, they were drawn into a life of worship, of worship and prayer. The books, Wright says, this is so important, they're self-involving. They're self-involving, like plays and poems. They say, and this is what the scriptures say to us, this is what's going on. Listen, guys, this is what's going on. These are the many dimensions that are drawn together. Now, come up on stage. Come up on stage, learn your lines, and join in. It's a play. It's a poem. And Wright says, and the first Christians... The first thing to join in with is worship. We're invited to participate. So there, there have been many dimensions that have been drawn together that we've seen over the last couple of weeks in Romans chapter 8. In Christ, he brings all these threads together. But the point all along is not about knowing. It's not about necessarily deep theology. It's that we are made, and this is a turn that N.T. Wright makes, and this is a turn the Apostle Paul makes in our text, we are made to be image bearers. We are made to perform the play, enact it, to make it alive, to come up on stage and speak our lines. We are called to reflect God's love and purposes into the world. So that's what I want to do this morning. So last Sunday, just a, a brief uh, catch up for those who uh, weren't with us last Sunday. Last Sunday, Paul described the world. He described the world according to his first century audience, to the Roman church, and he says the real world that we all live in, the real world we live in, all creation, all of it groans as if, as if the whole world and our environment and our history and our families, everything comes together, it groans together in the pains of childbirth. This is the language, it's vivid poetic imagery. And it's not just the world out there, so it's not just a big thing. It's not just all of it together that groans. Paul said that we ourselves, we too, we groan inwardly by the Spirit. And we were invited last Sunday to cry out, to cry out, Abba, Father, help me, hear me, Lord, hear me. So we are called to reflect God's love and purposes into not some fictional world, but the real world, the groaning world, to be made image bearers. So we already have an idea of what Paul is getting at in our text. In other words, we're called to be like Jesus. That, that's what it means to be an image bearer, to be godly, or to use older language, to be godlike. That's what we're called into in Christ, to join our groaning with the world's groaning, just as Jesus did. And Paul ended last week by saying, and we wait. We wait in this place. This place of participation by the Spirit in Christ. God is giving us patience. He's giving us patience to wait and hope. And so my main point this morning is worship as you wait. And there's two points underneath that. What does it look like to worship as you wait in this real groaning world. The first point, worship with groaning. Worship with groaning. Paul continues. He continues in verse 26. I encourage you to look at your Bible. Verse 26. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So let me address some of our expectations a little bit. They might not be yours, but they're the kinds of expectations that I've grown up with, and I I think you probably might resonate with them. We all expect, and we might not articulate this intellectually or theologically, but in our experience, we all expect a normal Christian life to be a lot of things. For example... Look at a church website, look at marquees or YouTube videos or whatever. We might expect normal Christian life to look like emotional worship with a perfectly diverse group of people on stage in the audience loudly singing together. That might be something that we equate with normal Christian life or else we might equate understanding the Bible, understanding the Bible so that We will be able to give an answer when someone asks for the hope that is in us, right? That should be familiar to us a little bit. We might think of the normal Christian life as going out into our city, out into our lives, out into our jobs to care for the poor and to proclaim the gospel. Do those things sound familiar with you? Okay, those are true things. Just so you know, I'm saying those true things at the start. This is what we think of when we think of the normal Christian life. But how does Paul describe the Christian life here in this text? Weakness. Now, some of us us are familiar with that as well. Weakness is the word. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What kind of weakness? What does he say? Paul describes our weakness like this. It's not all of our weakness. We have a lot of weakness. But he describes this. Not knowing what to pray. Is that familiar to a lot of you? Not knowing what to pray. We are weak, Paul says, because we don't have the right words to say. Have you been there? We don't have the right words to say. We are weak even because we don't pray for the right things. Even if we do say something, we say the wrong stuff. So we imagine a good Christian first as knowing the words. That's, that's where we start. That a good Christian knows the right words to say. They know the melody to the song and they sing it loudly or else they know the answer to the big theology or even the small theology. They understand it. This is what we think a good Christian does. They understand it and then they speak out a clear answer with confidence. But Paul says we do not know what to pray as we ought. Weakness. Weakness. Why does he say this? This is Paul's point at the beginning of our reading this morning. The Spirit. Because, why, why, do, we, why do we exalt in our weakness? Because the Spirit himself intercedes for us. How does he do this? With groaning too deep for words. He emphasizes the normal life of the Christian is weakness because we desperately need the Spirit to speak for us. John Chrysostom, we pray this every every morning and every evening in prayer. This line, at the end of all the things that we say out loud, he says, 
Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and our petitions as may be best for us. So, God, we said a lot of things. Please don't give us what we ask for if it's not best for us. That's what we pray at the end of our prayer. Scott Hahn puts it like this. The Spirit adds his voice to the chorus of groans rising up out of the valley of tears. This is, this is where God meets us. This is normal Christian life. God the Father, he sees us speechless. And he searches our hearts and he knows us. We don't know what to say. We walk around in the groaning world, we ourselves groaning outwardly and inwardly. And in that place, in that place of weakness, the Spirit intercedes for us. He translates, as it were, our deepest, wordless, confused, crazy hearts. This is normal. The longing of your heart that aches inside you. And if someone asked you, what do you want? What do you want? You wouldn't even be able to say it. It's just aching. It's groaning up in you. You don't even know what to say. Paul says this is the normal Christian experience. And even if you did think you knew what to say, you'd probably say the wrong thing anyways. And therefore, we need the Spirit to intercede for us. So God sees us. He sees us, and the Spirit translates to us. He, he speaks to our spirit, and he translates for us to the Father. Even as he sees us, he translates for us. He joins in with our groaning. He groans perfectly on our behalf before the Father. Worship with groaning. That's what the Apostle Paul invites us to do. Are you speechless? Are you weak? Are you a speechless, weak saint who don't know what you want today? That's okay. That's normal. God helps. God speaks. The Spirit speaks. He intercedes. He knows, and the Father searches, and He knows, and we're invited into this in the life of faith. The normal Christian life is speechless, groaning in a groaning, broken world. Crying out to Abba by the Spirit who wordlessly groans in us and to us and for us on repeat according to the will of God. Because we don't know his will. He needs to speak to us. It's for us. So because of this, because we worship with groaning, and because God does all of this by the Spirit, because of what he accomplishes in the gospel, therefore, my final point Worship with confidence. Worship with groaning and worship with confidence. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We could stay here for the next year. 
but we're not going to. Praise God. Thanks be to God. What do we know? What do we know according to this text? We know that we don't know what to pray. That's one thing we know. We know that we don't know our own hearts, even our own longings, but God does. So we know that. And finally, Paul says here, we know that for those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Do you remember this phrase, all things, from last week? Verse 32, just after this this verse, God graciously gives us, he uses this phrase again, all things. So remember from last week, remember our inheritance, our inheritance in Christ, all things, includes suffering. It includes all of the groaning, outward groaning, inward groaning. All of this is our inheritance in Christ. This is his purpose and his plan for us. We are, as we saw last week, we are heirs, heirs, fellow heirs. And in Christ, we inherit the creation as it is, which is broken and fallen and awaiting redemption. We inherit all of the longings, not of only of ourselves, all the groanings, not just me and myself, but everything else and everyone else around us. This is all things. This is the all things that we inherit. The speechless confusion, the groaning, all of it is ours. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is not throw a Bible verse at it Christianity. It's not. It's not bumper sticker theology that you can have a good day day today, Christian, or else I don't love God unless I feel good about what he's doing in my life right now today. No. Groaning. This is part of the inheritance. How? How do we respond to this groaning outwardly and inwardly? We don't know the purposes of God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We don't understand this. And Paul goes on to elucidate this even more in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11. This is the story of Job. This is the story of Isaiah, of all the faithful. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God's purpose was sure. It was set. It was solid. Before his good creation, before he made everything out of nothing, all things, before the good creation, before the creation rebelled and we rebelled against the Lord and we fell away because of our sin, before creation groaned, before man or woman even was, God knew. God knew. See, we bring our groaning and God brings redemption. This is, this is the move of the gospel. We bring no speech, and he speaks to us. We bring nothing, and he gives us all things. Everything that we need, he brings to us. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This is the gospel. We are glorified, and before that we are justified, and before that we're called and predestined and foreknown. This is sure. The actions of God, which are hidden in eternity past, are breaking into the present now by the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we participate in 
in this way of being, in this way of knowing, of understanding, we are conformed into the image of his son. This is what the Apostle Paul says. John Chrysostom, this is a lot of big theology summarized in two sentences. For what the only begotten Son, hear this, for what the only begotten Son was by nature, that is to say, He was God, He was only begotten of God, so He was God. What the only begotten Son was by nature, we have become by grace. This is remarkable. Christ, in his human nature, has become the firstborn of many brethren. He is fully man, even though in his divine nature he remains only begotten. He, does not, he is the firstborn of the new creation because he is fully man, and yet he is still fully God. We're invited to participate in the life of God in Christ. By the Spirit... Even now, our glorification is underway. It's happening. It's breaking into the present even now. God's firm foundation, Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those whom are his. The Lord knows those whom are his. This is life. This is the Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. And here is the choice before us this morning. When our not knowing confronts God's knowing, how will you respond? When you don't understand it all, when you don't grasp it all, when you don't even know your own heart, and God speaks to us out of infinite knowledge and understanding, how do we respond? How do we respond? Martin Luther puts it like this. This is how we should respond. Ah, it is the voice of the flesh that says, my, my. Strike out this my, my, and say instead, glory be to you, O Lord. Strike out this my, my, and say, glory be to you, O Lord, not my will, but your will be done. The goal is worship. The aim is worship, not understanding the depths and the complexities of it all. We have many questions, but that to get to the bottom of those and be able to articulate all those is not the point in the end. It's to worship God, to be conformed into the image of Son and give him glory. And that's okay. That is a normal Christian life. What then? What then shall we say to all these things? What should we say to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the implied question is God can't be for me. But if God is for us and he says that he is, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's not showing up. He's not answering my prayers. He doesn't give me anything. Oh, wait. He's giving me everything. All things, including my present suffering. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Even the charges that we bring ourselves. Who, who can bring any charge because of these things? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn, Paul says, even, even when we hear our own self-condemnation? Who is, who is to condemn? These are the questions we bring. Christ Jesus is the one who died. There is no condemnation in Christ. More than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.